When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. started to become evident very quickly to the officers that this was not just a runaway case. As anything new develops, I'll be more than happy to talk to you about it. Hello and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. If you are listening to this on October 3rd, which is when I have scheduled this to come out, And if all things went as planned, you are officially listening to a married woman. Uh, And weddings being happy occasions, I am pleased to bring you today, rather than a story of death and murder, a story of survival and incredible courage. This is the amazing story of Jennifer Shewitt. Jennifer Shewitt was a spunky and charming eight-year-old girl who lived alone with her mom, Elaine, in Dickinson, Texas. She had a very close relationship with Elaine being a single mom. Her dad was pretty much absent, so it was just the two of them. Jennifer's grandfather had just finished renovations on a home that he had purchased for Elaine and Jennifer, and they were going to be moving in in just a few weeks. Her grandfather had been worried about the rising crime rate in Dickinson, so he had wanted to ensure that they were in a good neighborhood, in a house with good security. And they had been living in the meantime in an apartment complex for the past five years. And that summer, her and her mom would go to the new house and help with the yard work. Uh, The new house was surrounded by a wooded area and the mosquitoes were something terrible. Jennifer would more often than not sleep in her mom's bed with her because she had a fear of the dark. And on the night of August 9th, 1990, Elaine tried to go to sleep with Jennifer beside her. But as anyone who has ever had the pleasure of one of their kids in the bed knows, they sleep like wild giraffes swatting flies off themselves, even without itchy mosquito bites. 
So after one kick too many in the face and side with Jennifer's elbow, she woke her around 2.30 in the morning and told her to go to her own room because Elaine had to work early the next morning. And in a sleepy voice, Jennifer said, just because I love you, mom, I'm going to sleep in my own room tonight. And with that, she left and returned to her own bedroom and crawled into her twin bed down the hall. Jennifer had a night side lamp in the shape of a giant light bulb. So she made sure to turn it on and to chase away anything that might go bump in the night. And she read a book until she fell asleep. The next morning, Elaine went to wake Jennifer up for school and couldn't find her anywhere. All she did find was her bedroom window open and Jennifer had vanished. Well, Jennifer, Jennifer, there was no sign of her any, you know, she was just gone. She did check with neighbors to see if anyone had seen her early that morning, but she knew in her heart that something bad had happened. She called the police immediately. She was completely panicked and a search was immediately started because Jennifer didn't have a history of running away uh, her young age and the circumstances, the police treated it like an abduction right from the beginning. Later that day, some kids were playing in a field and they discovered Jennifer's body near her elementary school. Her throat had been cut practically ear to ear. Her pink pajamas and underwear, along with a man's t-shirt and men's underwear were found discarded nearby. Jennifer was alive. Barely and rushed to the hospital where, where they discovered that her vocal cords had been severed, leaving her unable to speak. But the cut to her throat had miraculously avoided her juggler. They believed that she had been laying in that field, bleeding and covered in fire ants for 14 hours before she was found. She was terrified of police, um, really of any man, because the man that had abducted her had claimed that he was an undercover cop. Uh, but she started slowly to trust the officers and communicated with them exclusively by notes in her childlike handwriting. Once Jennifer was rescued, she knew she was her own best chance at catching the man who had hurt her. So she remembered every single detail that she could. And this young girl had an amazing eye for detail and remembered everything, like the tiniest of details. She knew at the time that she had been abducted Um, that it was going to be her only hope of finding the guy if she had survived. A sketch artist was brought in to help the police in their search. And again, even though Jennifer could not speak at that point, she wrote down enough details to put together an accurate portrait. And this sketch is actually a very detailed picture of a man. You know how a lot of times it's just generally a picture that doesn't doesn't even look like a real person. Uh, This one could have actually been a photograph. It was so detailed. And she noted what brand of beer and cigarettes that he'd used, like every detail about the inside of his car, his voice, his smell, places they went, drove past on the way, like everything. Although the police shared the photo with the public, they weren't able to find the man. And Jennifer remembered that it was just so frustrating to me to not be able to say what I wanted in the way that I wanted to say it. And it was then that the second miracle kind of happened. Although Jennifer's vocal cords had been cut in half and were never expected to reconnect, uh, they had slowly started to heal and a tiny sound had escaped Jennifer's throat during one particularly frustrating moment. Slowly, Jennifer was able to regain her voice and she says that she has refused to stop speaking ever since then. 
Back in 1990, a fairly large sample of DNA was required in order to make any kind of meaningful match, uh, and they didn't have that. So although being featured on America's Most Wanted and a $10,000 cash reward offered, they had no leads and the case unfortunately went cold. But Jennifer never gave up fighting for justice and was determined that someday she was going to find the guy responsible for hurting her. Jennifer recalls her abduction to a group of students at the Clinton School in New York City. We don't know the exact time, but I was um, taken out of my window by a stranger, and uh, he carried me down the uh, sidewalk of the apartment complex and put me in his car and calmed me down by telling me he was an undercover police officer and told me everything would be okay. When he carried me out, he had taken me out through my bedroom window and had me laying across his arms, and... um, I looked back and could see my mother's car parked in her parking spot at the apartment. So I already knew something was not right. Um, I had also never been watched by anyone. My mom didn't have time to go out and party as a young mother. She just worked all the time. So um, I'd never been watched by anyone except for grandparents. And uh, I just knew that something wasn't right here. Um, He put me in the vehicle and drove down um, Deach Road, which is one of the main thoroughfare roads in in Dickinson. It goes from one side of town to the other. And we passed my grandparents' home. And um, I told him, I said, you can drop me off there because all of their vehicles were there. And he said, no, no one is home. And he continued on and went, um, pulled into the parking lot of my elementary school, Silver Nagel Elementary. And there he said that my mom would soon come to pick me up. And he offered me candy, which we're taught in elementary school not to accept candy from strangers. Um, And then soon after, he was telling me uh, a lot of generalizations. Your dad loves you more than your mom. Your dad has a big gang together. Um, Things about uncles. And just at eight years old, you would believe that this person would know your family. Um, And as much as I, I wanted to believe all of those things, I still kind of felt in my gut that something was very wrong here. Um, we pulled out of the elementary school parking lot and went about a mile down the road um, to an overgrown field off of a short gravel road um, that was also a cul-de-sac. And there he pulled into uh, what we call in Texas is a bar ditch um, along the side of the road. And um, he, I, I was questioning him. I left out. I was a very curious eight-year-old. I always got in trouble for asking too many questions. But that actually came in handy um, during this situation because I was kind of interrogating him. I was wanting him to prove to me that he was a police officer, whether he was an undercover police officer or not. I wanted to know, where's your gun? Where's your badge? And um, he, he told me once parked that his gun was in the back seat. So I stood on the front bucket seat of the vehicle to look into the back seat for this gun or badge. And um, he immediately ripped my panties off and laid me in the front seat of the vehicle and started to lick me all over my body. On the ride there from passing my grandparents' house to the school, um, I was so terrified and scared that I had urinated all over him, and that didn't faze him at all. He was just licking me all over, and um, at one point held a knife to my throat and asked if I, um, am I scaring you, little girl? Am I scaring you? And then apologized later on. Um, And once at this field, he... um, got me out of the vehicle, and uh, kind of played hide and seek. Um, or It was like we were hiding 
from other people. He um, took his shirt off and had me hide, you know, right there on the overgrown bush um, that was facing the road. And at one point, a car kind of slowed down, I'm guessing, to write down the license plate number. And he just said that, um, you know, they're just someone probably being nosy and we needed to hide from them kind of thing. And eventually, um, I was unconscious and remember waking up being dragged behind him by my ankles through this overgrown field. I could feel sticks puncturing me, thorns. Um, I didn't know that he had slit my throat from ear to ear at this point. So he left me in the, a fire ant pile uh, for dead. And I um, heard his car door slam and he left and uh, never saw him again. I awoke, and it was light outside, and um, there's this little dog that kept coming up to me barking, and then would go home to his owner and then come back and bark and trying to, to tell his owner that something was wrong, but the owner never came. He figured the dog was just barking at a rabbit or something in the, in the field. Later on that day, um, about 6 o'clock in the evening, I was found by children playing tag in the field. Um, off of this short gravel road, there was a house um, off of a main road, California Street, and children lived there, and their back door basically opened up into this field, so they would go out and play, and they had forts and little trails that they had made in the field. So um, they were out there playing tag, and one of them tripped over my foot, and that's how I was found. Just in time, um, Life Flight came out, and um, brought me by helicopter to uh, UTMB in Galveston, and there I was treated for a lacerated throat and trachea. While in the hospital, um, I got mad at my mom because she wouldn't get me a chocolate bar from the gift shop, and I tried to yell my uncle's name to see if he would get me the chocolate bar, and a sound came out. And um, the doctors came in and um, put tubes down my nose to look into my throat, and they said there was no movement. They had me doing animal sounds, and there was no movement. But the next morning, I woke up and could talk. So there's still no medical explanation. Um, so I always like to tell the audience that this is what I feel is my purpose in life, is to use my voice in sharing my story and hopefully making a difference um, so that other survivors or um, those that are no longer with us, their families have um, the hope to get justice that they deserve. So my nurse and I in the PICU bonded almost immediately, and she told me that she had a daughter my same age, eight years old, whose name was Jessica. The nurse's name is Sharon McBride, and I still keep in touch with her to this day. And um, at that point, I just thought, what if he goes after Jessica and does this to her? I don't want her to have to go through what I just did. So I asked for a pen and paper, and I was heavily medicated, traumatized, but I wanted um, to help in him being captured. I knew from early on that if you did something bad, there needed to be a consequence. And so I started to write notes in the hospital of all of the events that had taken place um, previously on the night of the attack. And just kept writing, and I would give the notes to my mom. And back then in 1990, being um, such a small community, everyone was on guard. Um, and, I mean, I still ha hear people's stories. Old classmates still tell me they slept in their hallway by their parents' bedroom. I mean, everybody was just really terrified and, and didn't know who would do such a thing in our small town community. 
Um, so I had police officers guarding uh, the door outside of the PICU, and then when I was moved, I had police officers there. Even into my third grade year of elementary school, there was a police officer that would sit outside of my classroom. Um, while in the hospital, I also worked with Lois Gibson, who is very well known in Houston. She's a forensic sketch artist. In 1990, she had just started out, and um, being a younger female, they asked her to come to my bedside in the PICU and work with me to come up with a uh, composite sketch of the suspect. She did, and they only gave her an hour to work with me since I was so medicated and aggravated with all of the tubes in my neck and not being able to speak. Um, it was very frustrating, so um, just by me writing notes, uh, we came up with a composite sketch, and then I asked her to do a drawing of his uh, car as well. These are some of the notes that I wrote in the hospital. He said his name was Dennis. I was talking about my attacker. The man told me, take your clothes off. I said no. He took them off. The man undressed me and licked my tutu, and then he, uh, he drank beer right, right before that. The man dragged me to a big field. I'm in pain. He drove to woods and got out. I did too. Undressed me and licked me all over. I said, can I put my clothes on? He said, I don't want you to. Pocket knife. He dragged me to a field. Even though Jennifer got her voice back, her case was still unsolved and remained cold for years, passing from one investigator to another over the years. But Jennifer never stopped talking about her ordeal so that the details would stay fresh in her mind. She knew that someday she would be asked to recall everything, and she never gave up hope that someday she would get justice for what she had been through. Then, in 2008, her case was selected by the FBI's Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Team, which was looking for child abduction cases that had gone cold and that could be retested for DNA evidence, and Jennifer's case was one of only five cold cases that were selected for the DNA testing. The men's t-shirt and underwear was retested, including the underwear and pajamas that Jennifer was wearing that night. The DNA matched a registered sex offender who had served time in Arkansas for another abduction and sexual assault of a 35-year-old woman, Dennis Bradford. Dickinson to police detective Tim Cromie, the law enforcement officials working the case, remembered one of the notes Shewitt wrote shortly after the attack saying that his name was Dennis. Once Bradford was arrested, Renison and Cromie were able to get him in to confess to the abduction, rape, and attempted killing of Jennifer. You ever have a name Jennifer Shewitt? Yes. Do you ever have occasion to come in contact with her? Yes. Tell me about that. No. My whole life, for the past 20 years, has been utterly and completely because of my mistake. I can tell, obviously, it's special life, but I think you would, if you were to see her, I think you would be extremely proud of her. I really do.
2010, a few months before the trial was to begin, Shewitt received what she recalled the worst phone call of her life. Bradford had killed himself. I had worked so hard to remember every detail. I wanted to face him in court and to have my opportunity to read my victim impact statement. I wanted to see this through to the end. Um, so although it seemed to many that justice was finally served, Jennifer didn't agree with that. And a few months later, on August 10th, 2010, so exactly 20 years after she was she was abducted, she actually went to Bradford's gravesite and read her victim impact statement to him. Dennis Bradford, you chose the wrong little 45-pound, 8-year-old girl to try and murder because for 19 years... I've thought of you every single day and helped in searching for you. In my heart, I knew you were out there. And now I know, listening to my heart all of these years and never giving up on finding you, I was right. As I was reading it, I looked at my husband and I said, you know, I just can't help but think if he's hearing everything now that I have to say. And just then, a single fire ant bit me on the leg and she took that as a sign from God that Bradford had definitely hurt her. Uh, Jennifer was able to move on in her life and is happily married. Now, unfortunately, due to the rape when she was eight, she was left unable to have children of her own, but they were able to do IVF, and she is now the mother of two beautiful children, Jenna and Jonah. And that was the survival and courage of Jennifer Shewitt. Um, when I first heard that story, I just thought it was so great and I really wanted to share it. It is so nice to be able to share a story of survival uh, rather than being a victim. And I think that Jennifer would agree that she is not a victim. She is a survivor and um, I think that her family and the, the police that investigated the crime should be so proud of her. I'm going to be back again next week with uh, probably, sorry, another case of murder. But thank you so much for listening.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.